You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. This week, I'm podcasting a two-part conversation I had on March 18, 2006, with comic book legend Harvey Picard, author of American Splendor. In the first part of our conversation, we talk about his work as a jazz critic, how the improvisation and innovation he heard in music informed his early work in comic books, and how he wrote and self-published his comics. From the Agony Column podcast, I'm Rick Kleffel, and now part one of my conversation with Harvey Picard. Harvey Picard is the creator of the graphic novel autobiography American Splendor. His latest works are Ego and Hubris, The Michael Malice Story, illustrated by Gary Dumb, and The Quitter, illustrated by Dean Haspiel. Welcome to the program, Harvey. Thank you. Harvey, you started out as a writer writing reviews of jazz music. Tell us a little bit about writing reviews and, and how you came into that and how that helped you to learn to write fiction. Actually, I should point out I don't write fiction. This stuff is either autobiographical or, in the case of Michael Malice, biographical, but it's not fiction. Okay. Although uh, fiction writers have influenced me mainly. The way I got into doing the jazz uh, criticism was I was a big jazz fan and a collector back in the late 50s. And I used to correspond with a guy who was pretty active as a critic and uh, he used to write a lot of liner notes guy named Ira Gittler. When I was around 18, I one time I hitchhiked up to New York, partly f- to meet him, you know. And he encouraged me. He said, there's this new magazine out, the Jazz Review. You should uh, send them some of your stuff they're looking for. And I says, ah, oh, no, I'm not a professional. You know, those guys don't give a damn about me. I, I did anyway, and it got accepted. I just started working from there, and uh, I started, I develop my values, you know, how I look at or listen to records, you know, and listen for certain things, uh, listen for the harmonic, uh, melodic, and rhythmic characteristics of the music, listen for the, you know, the tone color and uh, how original the artist was or how influential he was, a lot of things like that to take into consideration until I had pretty much built up a a kind of, uh, you know, stock of uh, of um, of values, you know, and that's uh, and and I reviewed my uh, reviewed records as a re- you know like a you know with that system, and it's also that that system sort of is like led led me to the values I have as a writer of uh, comic books. I mean, I I try to do stuff that's original innovative. Tell us a little bit about this kind of lexicon of reviewing that you developed. It it sounds like y- you had kind of a a, a structure, a, a, yeah. a, set, a set of equations, in a sense, to, to now, describe yeah, the music. Not, it's not exactly equations, but there were certain things that I figured, you know, that I should look for in the, you know, in the music. Well, what did uh, you look for? What, what well, records like, inspired you? Well, there were a million records that inspired me, but what I was looking for was I was, you know, first of all, when you review something, you should describe it and describe it as accurately as possible. So I would look at the music from the stand, from different standpoints mm-hmm. that 
when taken together, make up pretty much the totality of music. It was the, the, the uh, melodic, the harmonic, the rhythmic elements, the structure, and the, you know, the tone colors. First of all, I would try and describe the music accurately, you know, taking into account these features. Then I would check out how, how original the artist was, because originality and innovation is, is real important to me, you know, to do, do stuff to voc- broaden the vocabulary of your art form. That was a big, a big thing with me, trying to, I mean, I, I, I really used to celebrate artists whose work was fresh, who were adding something to the, to the vocabulary of the form. And, um, you know, and I, you know, I retained some of those values. You know, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to write about books or write books from a harmonic, rhythmic, and melodic standpoint. That's when you're talking about music. But the, but the, the issue of originality and innovation still remains. And that's very important to me to, uh, to be doing stuff that's, that's uh, fresh and new, you know. And I've tried in my comic books to deal, well, to, you know, both from a stylistic standpoint and from the standpoint of content, I've tried to deal with uh, things that comic books have not dealt with much, if at all, before. Like, you know, like the standard comic book stuff is like superhero stuff, you know, and I I happen to believe that you can do anything in comics, and I think it's ridiculous that comics have been confined pretty much to doing superhero stuff when they could be doing anything. I mean, I'm not saying ban superhero stuff, but I'm saying that, um, uh, you know, you can do all sorts of things, you know, along with superhero stuff. Superhero stuff is, you know, just should be just a, a kind of a, a relatively small component of of what I would like to see comics become. So I started writing, uh, and I, I decided that I would like to write autobiographically. So a lot of my, awful lot of my work is autobiographical. Most of it is. And uh, I, you know, I asked myself, well, what, what do I, you know, know? You know, what can I write about that I'm knowledgeable about? And what I knew was just everyday life. I, I had a job as a file clerk at the VA hospital, you know, for years, for decades. Um, and uh, But I thought that the job, there were a lot of stresses and strains connected with the job and stuff. And, and I, I thought maybe I feel as upset about stuff as Condoleezza Rice does, you know, who knows. I just assumed that just because a guy, for example, is is worried about five hundred dollars rather than five dollars. A rich man is worried about five hundred thousand. A poor man's worried about five. But if it's if it's the last money they have, they're both gonna feel pretty bad about it. So, and I I tried to write stuff that people could identify with, talk about situations, no matter how humble or insignificant they may seem, like you know losing your keys or something like that, or not being able to start your car on a cold winter morning, something like that. That's So that's sort of like some of the things that I aim for when I started doing comics. This is an interesting point that you make about writing about what you know, because you started out writing reviews about jazz, which was what you knew. 
And in a sense, when you started writing your autobiographical fiction, it was you were reviewing your life. Yeah, autobiographical nonfiction. Not a biographical nonfiction. Yes, I'm going to remember that soon Soon enough. Tell us a little bit about some of your fictional influences. You said that you, you're influenced by fiction writers. Yeah, yeah, I was. I was influenced, uh, you know, by a, a number of them. I, I've done a lot of reading of fiction. Some of the people that influenced me, well, I was influenced by James Joyce, you know, like I do a lot of... Inter interior monologues, and uh, I was influenced by a, a guy named uh, George Ade, who I think was one of the top American realist writers around the turn of the century, like in a class with Theodore Dreiser and Frank Norris and Stephen Crane, except that um, he got real successful real soon, and he, he did some good stuff over about a 10-year period you know, he his stuff kind of got repetitive. But when he was on, and, and you know, he lived a long time and people forgot about him. That's what happened to him. But this guy would was a newspaper reporter and he would write about thinly disguised accounts of stuff he saw in the streets every day. He was one of the first guys, one of the first white writers to, you know, write seriously about a, a black man's life uh, in, in, a, in a book called Pink Marsh. And he wrote about a, a working class white kid's uh, life in uh, a, a book called Artie. They're, these are like novellas. Now, what were you doing when you encountered this writing? Where were you in your life? Well, I, was, I first got into George Ade. I was turned on to him by a guy who I don't know if you've heard of him or not. He used to be a very highly regarded uh, comedian by the name of Gene Shepard. I got into George Ade around 1960 when, when Shepard started writing about him. Now, what was happening in your life at that time? What were you doing? Well, I was, I was working a series, you know, I was just involved in working a series of flunky jobs until I got my job with the federal government. Well, my job at the federal government was kind of a flunky job, too, but, you know, it had good fringe benefits and stuff. And, it was know. steady and reliable. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it was. It suited me just just fine, you know. I was happy with it. Tell us a little bit about explaining why you like something in a review, and why something is a good work in a review is a means of understanding how to create a good work yourself, isn't it? Do, do the reviews help you? Your understanding of music help you to get at your own life better. Well, I mean. In the sense that mu my understanding of music involves my understanding in the larger thing, which is art. Yeah, I guess so, sure. And again, I come back to the, the issue of originality. The really great artists, I think, in just about every form, have been innovators, not guys who copied other people. Within the past several years, I've really badmouthed Wynton Marsalis's work. Because when Marsalis, although he's an excellent technician, he just copies other people. He gets involved, infatuated with, with one guy, and he'll do him for a while, and he'll do another guy. Like he was writing these compositions that were like Duke Ellington, and it went, early in his career, his playing was a lot like Miles Davis. He's gotten a tremendous amount of celebration, but he's never he's never been anything like original. I used to write these reviews, putting them down, and I think they probably upset some people because, you know, he's regarded as a, a kind of a 
a god among some jazz uh, fans and, and uh, reviewers, and jazz's last chance to make it, because jazz is in a lot of trouble right now. But um, well, Why would you say jazz is in a lot of trouble right now? Because, first of all, their share of record sales as broken down by genre it's like they only have like two percent of record, two percent share, mm-hmm. and it's going downward, you know, and it has been going down steadily. Another thing is that see, jazz doesn't jazz doesn't have a, a much of an avant-garde anymore. In other words, there aren't people that are mainly concerned with adding to the to the uh, to jazz's vocabulary. There the there are some guys, and they're doing very creative work. Like I can mention a guy named Joe Maneri, for example, but but their work is so far out that the average fan can't follow it. The rest of the jazz musicians just go around copying earlier musicians, and I don't think that's a healthy situation. If you're not getting anything new added to an art form, and most of the guys who are performing the art are just doing revival kind of work, reviving the swing era, reviving the bebop era, you know. That stuff's been done already. So you're looking for something that's entirely new and entirely innovative. Could it be that the new jazz just doesn't get identified as jazz? Well, that's a possibility, too, because in shedding some of its the characteristics that define jazz over a long period of time, and then these new guys came along, and, for example, their work didn't swing and swing had always been considered an essential part of jazz. You know, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. And and without without that, some people, although I think the music, you could point to the influences and, and see how it had gotten to a point where it didn't swing. And I don't think it has to swing to be jazz. But some people, they'd say that's classical music or something. Improvised classical music, modern classical. Marcellus is doing classical music these days, isn't he? Yeah, but I'm talking about... Avant-garde classical music. Jazz is like avant avant-garde jazz, some people think, is resembles avant-garde classical music. And it, it could be that the, the, the two avant-garde forms are, are headed for a blending or something like that. They're 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 headed toward each other. Now you have more and more artists who are familiar with both idioms and who take some stuff from both idioms and mix them. Uh, who would you cite in that in that realm? I'm curious. Okay. um, I told you, Maneri, um, Mm -hmm. who's a classical composer. Do you know, have you ever heard of John Zorn? Oh, yeah. John Zorn's great. Well, John Zorn, John Zorn, you know, is strongly influenced by classical music and has written some pieces that are more classical than, than they are jazz. A lot of the people that Zorn associates with or has associated with in the past, like, for instance, a guy named Dave Douglas who was a trumpet player with Zorn in a band called Masada. Dave has done some uh, some classically influenced stuff. These guys are, are they, however, except Zorn does have a, a kind of a following, mm-hmm. and, and he deserves it. But I think a lot of people just like him because they think he's far out than, than, than really understand what, you know, what he's doing, where he came from. And how he relates to the jazz canon itself. Right. So tell us a little bit. Let's ratchet back to you. You're working on one of your drudgery jobs, and you decide to start writing. You've been writing reviews, and you decide to start writing biography. Why did you choose to write 
comics, as write your biography as comics. Okay, uh, my autobiography. Autobi- autobiography. Yeah, why did I uh, start to do that? Because I saw that, that comics were a very underutilized medium. When I was a little kid, I used to read comic books. You know, I used to read tons of them. Like when I was in elementary school, from the age of about six to the age of about 11. And I'd save them and everything, you know, I was obsessive compulsive. However, as I got older, I got less and less interested in them, and they became less and less entertaining to me because they were formulaic. And the formula didn't have anything to do with any of your actual experience. Exactly. It's like right triumphs over evil and stuff like that, and the end has got to show that and things like that. So I, I, I was so dissatisfied with, with so many comic books after a, after a point that I just stopped buying them and reading them. And I, when I was a little kid, I mean, I, I couldn't articulate this, but when I was like around 11 years old or something, I thought that comics had something intrinsically wrong with them, that there was something that, that kept... Uh, s- substantive works from being written and, and drawn in the comic style. Mm-hmm. Something that was just part of the nature of the art form itself. It couldn't yeah. couldn't do anything good because it was a comic. Yeah, right. It it just it just all oh, they're just you know like people say today if they want to put something down you know like a simple minded or something they say well it's just like a comic book or something like that. In 1963, Robert Crumb. Do you know who he is? Oh, yeah. Robert Crumb moved from Philadelphia to Cleveland, about a block and a half away from where I lived. And we were both jazz fans at that time and record collectors. And I got to know him. And I looked at his, you know, cartoon work. Mm -hmm. And it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And I thought, my God, I've been wrong about comics. You know, you can do any kind of story you want in comics. You know, you can use any word in the dictionary in comics. You know, you can use a whole, whole wide variety of illustration styles, but people just haven't done it. For some reason, comic books has just, just been mired in this superhero stuff for so long, and everybody's afraid to do anything else. Like comics, they think comics can't do anything else. Well, I was sure that comics could do anything else. It just stood to reason that if you got access to all the words that Shakespeare had, you ought to be able to write a good story in, in comics. And I figured that this was innovative, you know, to start dealing with material that comics haven't dealt with much, or even like literature, like this quotidian stuff that I'm talking about, it's not dealt with much in, in, in novels either, you know. Now, this is something you really like. This is a word you really like, quotidian. Yeah, right. And, and day, you know, day by day. Day by day. Life. Life. Yeah. I can say that instead of quotidian if you'd rather. No, no, no. I, it, it's an interesting word, and it crops up a lot in your work, and I, I wanted to, yeah. to talk a little bit about it. So you were corresponding with Crumb. Talking well, to I was, him. I was talking to him, yeah. Hanging out with Crumb. Yeah, and, right. And, and how did you start actually writing? Did you... Well, actually, it took me a, a pretty long time to get into the writing aspect of it because I I wasn't an illustrator, so I could I needed to, cl- to collaborate with a, an illustrator to get the work done. And I didn't know who to ask. I didn't have any contacts in that field. And, you know, I, I also didn't know how my work would be received 
my stories would be received by them, and I was, you know, afraid of rejection. But finally, in 1972, Crum was, you know, visiting me. At that time, he moved out to California, and um, he came. He came over to my house, and uh, I I just prepared a bunch of stories for him in the storyboard uh, style, you know, using. Uh, stick figures and balloons and, and, you know, dividing the page up into panels. And I showed him the crumb, and I asked him, what did he think? Did he think this stuff was viable, would be viable in comics? And he said he, he liked the stuff, and not only that, but he would like to take some home and work, you know, and work on them, illustrate them. So that was, that was a tremendous break for me. When he did that, I mean, it was it was like I, I skipped over a lot of people that were, you know, just starting out because here I was uh, already I was associated with one of the greatest, you know, cartoonists in the world. That that was that, your start. That was my start, meteoric beginning. So tell us a little bit about this this process of writing for you. Do you actually write out? Do you draw out a page and create the panels? To, right. So you so you don't do any like sit down at a typewriter and type no, out dialogue. No, yeah, I don't do uh, scripts like common movie scripts or theater scripts. I break down the the page into into panels. I have my characters in there, except I I just make them stick figures, and I put them I put thought balloons in with them and 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 uh, word balloons, and I write captions, and I also write instructions to the artist about uh, how in general I, I think the scene that I'm writing about you know looks I describe maybe the principal characters in it and if there's a room you know what how it's furnished something like that I mean I don't get extremely specific like some guys do like Alan Moore is a guy I don't know if you've heard of him oh yes but Alan Moore if you look at some of his scripts and I like Alan's work but if you look at some of his scripts it's like he prescribes everything for the artist, including the colors. They're very, very detailed. You have I a more jazz feel with your well. I, I like to I like to leave it a little bit open, and maybe I don't even see it as completed as Alan Moore does. I don't know. I mean, Alan Moore's also an illustrator, and Harvey Kurtzman, who used to also write very detailed scripts. You know, the guy who created Mad Magazine. He was also an illustrator, so those guys, they they do everything but like the final draft of the work. They'll do all kinds of roughs and and things like that. Tell me, do you, how do you revise and, and tell me a little bit about writing dialogue in thought balloons? That must be a really interesting process. Writing dialogue what in thought balloons? Oh, or, or in balloons? We're balloons. No, I mean I I grew up. You know, reading that kind of material, and it never, I don't know, you're the first guy that's actually asked me that, you know, in, in all the years I've been doing this stuff. I, it never, a guy says something, so you put it, you know, you put it over his head, what he says, and then you stick, a, stick it in a bubble and make a line going down to him. That's, that's what it amounts to, and I think given a little practice, many, many people can probably write successful thought or, or word balloons. Like if there were thought balloons, they would have bubbles going up from the guy's head to the, to the, uh, to the, um, to the balloon. It's a pretty easy technique to use. And, uh, 
Well, now, you, since a lot of your stuff is biographical, it's right there. You're reporting what you've seen. When you're sitting around and taking stuff in, you're recording stuff to be used later, right? In, in your, as a, yeah. Your, do you have a photographic memory? I have a real good memory, actually. And I also... Do you take notes when you hear some particular... Sometimes I do, yeah. Sometimes I take notes. Sometimes I'll just go home and write the story complete as I saw it, maybe a couple hours previous, because there's some nuances there that I'm afraid I might forget if I wait, you know, a day before I write it. So uh, I do that. But yeah, yeah, I, 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 I take notes and I do... I write stories very soon after I've had the experience... You started out self-publishing, is right. this correct? Yeah, right. Tell us a little bit about the perils of self-publishing, how you felt, because you were a guy who had been, after all, reviewing professionally published music. Yeah. So now you're putting your own work out to be reviewed. And tell us a little bit about your experience doing that, in, in, just in terms of the, the nuts and bolts. I mean, did you go out and photocopy stuff or, or mimeograph, or how well, did you do that in the, in the yeah, well, I would give the artists scripts, and then they would draw them, you know, on these large sheets of uh, paper or cardboard. They would create the story. They would pencil mm -hmm. it, and they would ink it, and they would letter it, and everything like that. So that Did you, you have know, much of a chance to revise this stuff? I mean, when you were doing your dialogue, writing your, your thought balloons, did you? Yeah, did because, you? I, I mean, I... I the, a lot of the guys I worked with lived close to me, and I could just go over and see how things were progressing. So it was an over-the-shoulder revision process. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Must it, did you ever have, like, conversations with them? Like, I, I don't want to do nothing. Well, I really, I really didn't complain too much. For one thing, I thought that, I mean, I was paying them so little money that I figured it'd have to be really something pretty terrible for me to start complaining about it, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and some of the people I worked with, frankly, weren't that talented. It was just... I worked with whoever I could work with. I wanted to work with real good people, but if they weren't available, I, I mean, I, I'd, I'd rather have my stuff drawn by a merely competent artist than not have it done at all. So how so, did you get your stuff published? I, well, okay, the process was this. We, you know, I would collect all the, uh, you know, the artwork, the original artwork, and I would take them down to a place that shot negatives, and they would they would shoot the you know the negatives of these uh, of of the of the pages that I wanted to put in the comic book, including the cover. And um, oh my God, that means that you must have somewhere these originals piles. No, 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 of they, incredible no, originals. No, they go back to the no that by that time it was it was already the custom to give the, the artist back his original stuff. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would have, uh, then I would, I, would, I would take these down and get them photographed. And then the guy would give, the guy who photographed them would give me like uh, two sets to take. You know, one was the cover, which was color. And I would take that to one printer who, you know, specialized in, in printing color stuff. And the other was black and white. And I, so I'd have the covers done by one company and the inside done by another. And then they would ship them to a bindery that is a place that, you know, would take the inside of the book, st stick it 
in inside of the uh, cover, staple it together, staple them together, and trim the you know trim the book to get your finished product. I mm. looked around Cleveland, which is not exactly a, a major publishing center, and that was the best I could do. And as far as apparels, I mean, I lost a lot of money, but I figured, I, but I quit collecting records. So, you know, I, I lost about as much as I spent on records, so I, I figured it was worth it. Um, so to how big was your first publication? I mean, how many I, copies did I you print? Did, I always did 10,000. 10,000. So yeah. you started big from the beginning. That's yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, it's fairly big. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, well, the cost per unit goes down when you, you print more of them. How did you distribute it, and how did you get it reviewed and respected? Okay, there were, um, as far as the distribution, there were at one time several distribution systems in place in this country that would that would distribute underground comics or alternative comics, whatever you want to call them, like uh, Last Gasp, Kitchen Sink were a couple of them, you know, Capital City. I would just send them a comic book and ask them if they'd be interested in buying some, and they would order some, you know. Okay, now about how did I get them reviewed? I didn't even, at that time there was so little critical writing about comic books, uh, alternative comic books, that I didn't even try and get them reviewed. I, uh, but I was fortunate in that there were people, there were a few people that liked that liked alternative comics, and that did do some pioneering writing about them. And they only wrote about stuff they liked. And who so, is this? Oh, some of the guys' names? Yeah. I mean, well, it was Clay, Clay Geardes was, was one of the guys. He put out a, a newsletter like every week or month or something like that. That uh, he, was, he, was, he was maybe the, f the first guy to, to get into that stuff. But the... The thing was that these guys would just like write about stuff they liked, and if they didn't like it, they wouldn't pan it. They just wouldn't write about it, mm -hmm. unless it was maybe they would pan it if it was by some you know famous guy you know that everybody'd known about. So I got nothing but real good reviews for the for the first several years that my comic came out, and that I think helped me create a positive uh, atmosphere about them. People really liked them. And then comic, other uh, comic book artists were, you know, saying that they liked this stuff. And Crumb endorsed my work and stuff. So it just it just slowly, gradually grew to a point when... How long before you broke even or making money on this? About 15 years. 15 years. And, and that was because I started going to comic conventions and selling them there. There you could take a, a comic book that cost you 40 cents to produce, and instead of selling it for a dollar to a wholesaler, you could sell it for like $2 or something like that to a retail customer. So I might made much bigger prof, profit. So I used to go to a couple comic conventions uh, in the summer. So I got, I'd, I'd go to uh, the big one in Chicago, and there was a, the biggest one was in San Diego. So you're essentially driving around with your work in your trunk for 15 years. Yeah. And that takes a lot of self-confidence, doesn't it? Especially for somebody who, who lives a, a quotid, such a quotidian life and is writing about such 
a quotidian subject. Well, everybody, you know, I mean, maybe it did take a lot of self-confidence, but everybody that was putting out comic books, a lot of them were doing self-publishing. They were, you know, doing even stuff that was just Xeroxed and doing little small batches of it. And they used to come to these conventions, too, and they would sell their stuff, even the, the shyest among them. So, uh, and I, I, I had developed over the years some contacts with people in comics, so I wasn't exactly a complete stranger to these conventions when I, when I went to them. And the people that came over to my booth knew who I was, so I didn't have to give an, ex an explanation about what I was trying to do. They already knew. From the Agony Column podcast, I'm Rick Kleffel. You've just heard the first part of my two-part conversation with comic book legend Harvey Picar. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.